What I want you to know this morning is that Jesus wants something better for you than what you want for yourself. I want you to know this is what the sending of the Spirit was about at Pentecost, and this is the message deeply embedded into this parable. Jesus has something better in mind for you and for your life than you have in mind for yourself. In Scripture, it goes by many names. The life that is truly life is what Paul calls it. The good life is what we might call it sometimes. Jesus called it life abundant. Doesn't that sound good? Life abundant? The life that is truly life? Don't you want it? Don't you really, really want that in your life? Most of us do in theory. But what if living the life that Jesus wants for you is at odds with living the life you want for yourself? What if living the life that Jesus wants for you is actually at odds with the life that you want for yourself? What if having the life that Jesus wants you to have will actually cost you the life you think you want? Would you still want it? Do you still want it? This is the kind of questioning that confronts anyone and everyone who's ever considered the call of Christ on their life. And the answers we give at each interval of our lives in some ways seems to separate the all-in disciples of Jesus from his admiring crowd surfers. And we see this in Luke 12. Jesus is surrounded by thousands of people who are trampling over one another to hear him speak. And in the midst of this, a man pushes through the crowd and interrupts Jesus because he needs something that he's sure Jesus will want to provide. Have you ever needed anything from Jesus that you were sure he would want to provide? Because surely that's what the best thing is. But maybe later you found out maybe not. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, he said. And you could have heard a pin drop. Because this man, in that moment, has already outed himself as someone who has a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus. Remember, the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. Everything, family, home, resources, property. The disciples knew that the very things they'd given up to get life were the things that this guy was wanting Jesus to give him. Watch out, Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now the Greek word for life here is the word Zoe. You may know someone whose name is Zoe. Aaron and Andrea Huffman had a little girl here who you all knew and loved named Zoe. Zoe often means life in the biological or physical sense, but it's also the word John used in John's Gospel when Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. 
Later in this passage, Jesus and the rich man both use the word psyche for life. Psyche is sometimes translated soul and refers to the life of the mind and the life of the emotions. It's where we get our word psychology. And the point of all that is when Jesus is talking here about life, he's talking about every aspect of our lives. He's talking about our mental lives, our physical lives, our spiritual lives, our emotional lives. He's talking about every aspect of your life, all integrated into one. Jesus wants all of life to be filled with his abundant life. And contrary to what many of us tell ourselves, this will not come through an abundance of possessions. This is so fundamental to the wisdom of Jesus. The Bible contains about 500 verses on prayer, about 200 verses about faith, and about 2,000 verses about money, and some of the most significant verses about how we use our wealth are right here. But seek God's kingdom, and these things will be added to you as well, Jesus says just after this parable. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Jesus seems to be saying that what we do with our money reflects something about the status and state of our heart. And maybe this is why one of the first things that happened at Pentecost when the Spirit descended and transformed all of those lives is that they began to share their resources with one another. Remember, they had all things in common. And maybe this is why when Zacchaeus repented and gave his life to Jesus, one of the first things he did was take his wealth and redistribute it, multiplied out to the people he'd taken it from. What we do with our money says something about the status and state of our heart. And what we do with our money has the ability to affect the status and state of our heart. Do you believe that? When we say things like, Money won't buy happiness. Do you believe that? Money won't buy happiness? Some people don't believe that. Michael Norton didn't. Michael Norton is a professor in the business department at Harvard, and he says anyone who says that money can't buy happiness does not know what they're talking about. He says people who believe that are simply spending their money in the wrong way, on the wrong things, and he's got proof to back it up. Now are you ready to listen? Right? In his work, Norton cites an article that he'd read that talks about what happens when people win the lottery, and he boils it down to a couple of things. One, they spend all of their money and go into debt. And two, all of their friends begin to bug them and ask them for money to help them with, with their problems. So what happens when people win the lottery usually, maybe not always, but usually, is that they go into debt, and while they're going into debt, everyone who knows them starts reaching out to them for financial help, and it makes them not happy, but miserable. And it's an interesting article, but what's even more interesting, you know, you're not supposed to usually read the comments, but it, it's more interesting sometimes than the article itself. And what was more interesting about this article when you go to it is if you read the comments, most of the people when they read Michael Norton's article about this didn't respond and say, yes, amen, money is the root of all evil, but instead responded like the guy from Fiddler on the Roof who when told that money is the world's curse, responded, may the Lord smite me with it and I never recover. 
Most of the people in the comments section simply responded with what they'd do if they won the lottery. Two notable responses, but there were many. One person said, when I win, I'm going to buy my own little mountain and have a little house on top, which sounds pretty nice, actually. Another person said, if I won, I would fill a big bathtub with money and buy a big fat cigar and sip champagne. I'd take a picture of myself doing this and have copies made, and if anyone asked for money, I would send them a copy of the picture instead and nothing else. Who wants to see that Christmas card? And most of the comments were like this, totally and completely missing the deeper point in ways they weren't even aware. Most of the things people said it was about what they do with the money, and it involved them isolating themselves from others so that they could enjoy the money that they'd won in peace. Which Michael Norton says is absolutely the worst thing that you can do if you really want your money to buy happiness. Instead, he says if you want your money to buy happiness, there is one universal truth, one universal practice, tried and true, you should be spending it on others. And he did a research experiment and, and did this research in little groups all over the world to prove it. And this was the experience, experiment. His team would go into a place, a village or a university or a, a corporate office or something like that, and they would hand out envelopes with money in them to everyone. Some of the envelopes had a lot of money in them. Some of them had just a little bit of money in them. And, and then what they would do is they would instruct them how to spend the money. And some people were instructed to spend the money on themselves, and then other people were instructed to spend the money on others, and they had less than a day to do it. So here, people went out. It's like Brewster's Millions. People went out. Some people spent money on makeup and jewelry and new, new clothes or coffee for themselves. He actually said it was amazing how when you hand an envelope with $5 in it to a college student, they automatically think coffee money, but not always for themselves. Some bought coffee for themselves, and some bought coffee for others. And here's what they found. They found that the people who spent money on themselves experienced no change. Zero. They weren't worse, and they weren't any better either. They didn't feel happier, and they also didn't feel less happy. The money had a neutral effect on those who spent it on themselves. But if they spent the money on others, they were happier. And, and, and it didn't matter the amount. It didn't matter the place from a woman in Canada who bought something small for her mother to a woman in Uganda who paid for life-saving malaria treatments for a stranger. What they saw was amazing. If they spent the money on themselves, no matter the amount, no matter the thing purchased, there was zero change. But if they spent the money on someone else, the oxytocin in their brain began to move and they automatically began to feel better, which is what was expected. Because we know that if someone does something generous, there are actually chemicals in our brain that get ignited and released in the brain of the person who did it, in the brains of the people they did it for, and in the brains of those watching it happen. 
And then Norton expanded the research to include what happens with communities who give more money to charity, and guess what? Those communities are happier. What happens when leadership teams at a corporation spend money on themselves versus when teammates spend money on each other? The latter that spent money on each other are more happy. More happy. More good, more happy. He also did research on athletic teams like uh, dodgeball teams, of all things. Ben Stiller and Vince Vaughn were not available for comment. Some of you got that. The dodgeball teams uh, where individuals spent money on themselves not only weren't as happy as the teams where they spent money on others, but they performed, the, the ones who spent money on others performed better and they had more success. So why am I telling you all this? Isn't it amazing that the wisdom of Jesus from over 2,000 years ago continues to hold true in advanced studies of the brain today? If you want to experience the life that is truly life, you have to give it away. If you want to gain life, you have to give life. And this is at the core of the teachings of Jesus and is at the heart of this parable. Jesus tells the story of a rich man who in a harvest one year, harvest more than any of his existing barns could hold. Now notice really quickly in that, there's some things we don't want to miss here. This man was already rich before the harvest. Not because of the harvest, before the harvest. The word used for land or ground here isn't the word that's usually used in that day and time for farmland, but the word that's usually used for district. This guy owned a district. He was already very, very rich when the harvest came in that year. And notice his response. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice, I, 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 my, my, my. In the parable, we hear only about him, only about what he wants, only about what he needs. But in the district, we know that he's not alone, right? We can imagine this. There are other people in this very district where he lived. There on that very day, there are day laborers who work the land and who will be building his new barns. There are families there living paycheck to paycheck, hoping that nothing catastrophic like a flood or a famine or a fire comes along and ruins everything that they have. There are families with sick children waiting for some life-saving procedure that they just can't afford. There are homeless people there. There are starving people there who are hoping each day for, at best, a hand-to-mouth existence. And then there's this rich guy who's got more than he will ever need. And then he gets even more than that, and his first instinct is what? To figure out what he can do to keep it all to himself. And why? Because he can. 
There's absolutely nothing illegal about his choice. There's nothing illegal about what he's doing. He can do this. It's his right, just like it's our right to do whatever we want to do with our resources. But why did he choose to do this? What was his motivation? What do you think? Maybe because he wants to wait until the grain is scarce and the prices of grain are higher so that he can sell the surplus grain for a higher price to people who can barely afford it as it is. Maybe. Or it may be that he just wants to retire well. Can anybody here resonate with that? We want to retire. We want to retire well. Maybe he's just getting ready to retire well, or actually what we see here is even better than well. And what's wrong with that? Why why shouldn't he do that? Why would he choose to do what he's doing to make that so? Because he wants to have an abundant life. We're back to that. And yet... And yet the irony is that it is actually in his excessive efforts to gain an abundant life that he lost it. And by the time he finally realizes it, by the time he's able to see how little he's actually accumulated and how little it matters, it's too late. You fool, Jesus says. This very night your life will be demanded of you. And then who will benefit from all that you've prepared for yourself? Not me. Not them. Not anyone. This is what happens, you see, when you fill your barn with self and not with God. I wonder this morning how many of us are busy filling our barns with self and not with God. This is a day about wonder and wondering about the purpose of the Spirit in our lives. And so I wonder how many of us are missing out on abundant life this morning because we don't know what to do with our abundance of possessions. I wonder how many others out there How many people out there, how many ministries out there are missing out on things that God intends for them because we in here are possessed by our possessions? I wonder what is missing in our lives, in our world, because we, like the rich fool in this parable, have decided to wait to be generous. There's absolutely no legal reason why we should live any different. We have a right to hold and hoard all of our resources for ourselves. But if we really want the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give, why would we? The table is a symbol of God's generous, self-giving love. It is a symbol of all that God gave, of all that Jesus gave, so that we might have access to God's abundant life in our lives. Christ's body, broken for each and every one of you. And it was harder than it looked.
Christ's blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, as we come to the table to receive the symbols of Christ's body and Christ's blood, may God's grace flourish as it flows down deeply within us and also in our lives beyond us. We pray. Holy God, we need more than the example of Jesus and His generosity. We need the power of Your Spirit to stir us up and to transform us into radically, recklessly generous people who are committed to seeing your abundant life flow in this world, just as those early disciples were, as they radically changed the world for Christ. May this moment, as we see, receive communion, be a moment where somehow the ears of our soul Hear the Spirit rumbling in our midst as it descends upon us anew and sets our hearts on fire for you and your gospel in this world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.